Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. Andrew and I are delighted that we're again joined by Dr. Celine Gounder, good friend and leading expert in the field of global health and epidemiology, infectious diseases. Welcome, Celine. It's so great to have you back with us. Oh, it's great to be here, Steve. Celine's a senior fellow and editor at large for public health at KFF Health News. I guess we're no longer calling it Kaiser Family Foundation. It's now KFF. She's a CBS News medical contributor and a professor of medicine and infectious diseases at New York University Grossman School of Medicine. And we're here to talk about the triple-demic. We're entering this respiratory virus season where we're concerned with the convergence flu of COVID and of RSV. That would be respiratory syntitial virus. These are seasonal. We'll hear more about what makes them seasonal, why the administration has made preparations for this season such a high priority with a special emphasis on the elderly. So, Celine, just for our listeners, let's start by just explaining what this is all about, this triple-demic. Why is this a priority? And are the, how dangerous are these threats of flu, COVID, RSV? So the three biggest killers in terms of respiratory viruses uh, prior to COVID were influenza and respiratory syncytial virus, also known as RSV. COVID has joined that group. So now it's influenza, RSV, and COVID, which account for the vast majority of viral respiratory illnesses and requiring hospitalization and or causing death every year. To put some numbers on that, with the flu, we see somewhere between 12 and 52,000 deaths per year. This past year with COVID, between October of 2022 and March of 2023, so this is after we had vaccines and some immunity, we still saw 68,000 people who died of COVID. So it's not the flu, it's worse than the flu. And RSV, we typically see between six and 10,000 deaths among older adults per year. So cumulatively, you know, we're talking about a couple hundred, few hundred thousand deaths per year. And these are viruses that overlap in seasons. The seasons were thrown off for flu and RSV by some of the mitigation measures over the pandemic, which makes it a little bit difficult to prognosticate exactly when the seasons are going to hit. And so we really just have to be ready for whatever comes. Let's unpack a little bit of the uncertainties that hang over this particular moment in time. This is something the administration's made a priority. It's hanging a lot on this. It's telling its folks internally this is a very, very big moment, and there are uncertainties. What about the vaccines for these three? Will they be available? Will they be approved and produced and made available in time? Well, flu vaccine, uh, we, we don't expect any major issues. With respect to COVID vaccine, so in June, 
the committee that advises the FDA on COVID vaccines, they met and recommended that this fall's COVID vaccines be tailored against the XBB subvariant of Omicron. We anticipate that sometime in mid to late September, the CDC will then release recommendations on these updated boosters and who will be eligible for those updated boosters. We anticipate that's likely to be everyone six months of age and older, and that the boosters will be available in late September. The RSV vaccine is already available for people 60 and over. You can make an appointment right now to get one. There's also an RSV vaccine for pregnant women that was approved by the FDA just yesterday in August when we're speaking now. And we're waiting on the CDC to make recommendations on its use. And so we anticipate that they will do so in mid-September and that the RSV vaccine could be available to pregnant women late September, early October. So basically, flu is available, updated flu a little bit longer. RSV is available for people 60 and up. Pregnant women need to wait a little bit longer. And COVID boosters probably late September. Thank you. Over to you, Andrew. Thanks, Steve. Selene, great to have you back on the podcast as always. I have to ask you, along with this uncertainty, it seems like we're drifting back into an era where communication on these issues is really lacking. I mean, I'm starting to hear about friends who have contracted COVID recently. Out of nowhere, people, when you travel, you're starting to see people wearing masks in airports and things like that again. I'm feeling like there's a real lack of communication coming from government officials, coming from even our own personal doctors about what we need to do to be safe and to prepare for the fall. Can you let us know what your thoughts are about the communication efforts? And does this void that we seem to be experiencing right now lend itself to another cycle of misinformation, disinformation? Yeah, whenever you leave an information void, you're leaving a vacuum that will quickly be filled by mis- and disinformation. So it's a really unfortunate position that we're in right now. I also think that the CDC and other government officials, as well as for that matter, healthcare providers are really burned out from the last few years and feel like there's been backlash against attempts to communicate with the public and are somewhat gun-shy about how to approach it this year. Just earlier today, KFF released polling data on health misinformation in the United States, and our polling data shows that a big chunk of Americans really are confused, to your point. And most people don't believe the lies or the facts about COVID and COVID vaccines. They just don't know. In particular, we see a higher percentage of Black adults, Republicans, and people without college degrees who believe lies about COVID vaccines. And the problem is when people don't know, or worse, when they believe the lies, they don't act to protect themselves and get vaccinated. I think you're going to see the administration urging that all Americans get all of the vaccinations for which they're eligible. So in other words, influenza and COVID, plus RSV in the case of people 60 and over, and soon probably also RSV vaccination for pregnant women in their third trimester of pregnancy. This is the top priority for uh, Mandy Cohen, the new CDC director. There's a lot riding on this reputationally. This is a big test for this administration as to whether it's been able to learn the hard lessons of the past. They can't rely on mandates, obviously. They've got to rely on persuasion and communication, as Andrew was suggesting. 
What have you seen so far in terms of their communications? Frankly, not a lot. I think, you know, there is some data they could be leveraging in this moment. In particular, there's been a lot of polling data, whether that's KFF or other polling teams, in terms of who is most trusted as a source of health information. We know from our experiences during the pandemic that trusted messengers, people from community, are the most trusted when it comes to health information. And also, according to KFF polling, Local TV and broadcast news are also trusted sources of health information. And so my hope is that the CDC and public health departments will be leveraging all of these avenues to get the message out. Celine, you know, there seems to be, Steve mentioned Mandy Cohen, but since our friend Ashish Jha left the administration, it seems like there's a void in communications. Do you think that the administration needs a singular voice, many voices. And then also I want to ask you, just what should our listeners be thinking about going into the fall in terms of getting ready to prepare for this? I think having one voice can be problematic. You end up with somebody who's a lightning rod for anti-vaccine attacks, as happened to Tony Fauci, for example, during the pandemic. So I think what you need are different voices, but on the same page with essentially the same message different voices representing different communities who resonate with different communities, who people identify with. That would be the strategy I would recommend. And hopefully we'll see some of that unfolding. In terms of who should be getting vaccinated, I think in particular, people over 65, especially people over 75, are at high risk for hospitalization and death from all three of these viruses, be that influenza, COVID, or RSV. And I think you're going to be seeing a push in particular, addressing the elderly by the Biden administration to get those folks vaccinated. Some of the questions I know people will have is, well, what about insurance? Am I going to have to pay for these vaccines? There's some good and bad news here. The federal government is no longer providing COVID shots to everyone for free, but you will be able to find boosters, COVID boosters at your local pharmacy for free if you have insurance. If you're not insured, if you don't have insurance, the Biden administration is launching what's called a bridge access program to provide free shots through next year. But COVID shots won't be available through this program at pharmacies until mid-October or so. So there could be a bit of a delay there. But big picture, people who are covered by private insurance, Medicare or Medicaid are not expected to have to pay out of pocket, so out of their own money, for vaccine shots or treatments in the coming months. Celine, my understanding is that the pharmacies or clinics, it's incumbent upon them to make the purchase, create their stockpile, anticipating what use level there will be, and then seek reimbursement or the unused stock somehow return it. So there is a certain amount of financial risk being borne by those entities. And we know that among adults, the uptake of the earlier booster, the double booster that we had, this this one's monoclonal, but that the uptake levels were fairly low among adults, although the elderly, the uptake was almost three quarters, I think. And so I could imagine that we really need to have the pharmacies and clinics fully on board, willing to lean forward on this so that people don't get the impression that actually there are shortages. 
Yeah, it's not shortages that I'm worried about, but rather that there's an upfront cost for a doctor's office to have to buy a vaccine. There's also the new monoclonal antibody for RSV called Bayfortis, which is yeah. about $500 a dose, which is quite yeah. expensive. So for doctor's offices to be stocking these things, paying out of pocket for themselves, not sure if they're going to have people coming in for those shots, not sure if they're going to be reimbursed is a big ask. And so I think some of the most accessible places to be getting this protection, these vaccines, the monoclonal antibody is likely to be either at the retail pharmacy chains or big healthcare systems that can really afford to do this. Your local family practice doctor or pediatrician may have a much harder time uh, having these things in stock. So the success from the administration standpoint, they have less control over the different facets of this. The success to some degree will, will rest with decisions made by private sector actors. Yeah, I think that's right. And those private sector actors will also be making decisions based on what they see in terms of demand among their patients or population. So there's something of a feedback loop there, too. Yeah. And there seems to be some confusion around, let's say you live in the countryside and your health provider or your pharmacy is 40 or 50 miles away. You're probably not going to want to make three trips when you can make one for efficiency's sake. But on the other hand, there's a debate going on on whether you should space these vaccines or get them all at once. What's your thoughts on that? Well, ultimately, I think it's up to you as the patient. How are you most likely to get the two or three shots that you might need this fall? If you know yourself and that it's going to be in one visit, that's probably the best answer. If you know you're not going to be able to make it in easily more than once. If you know that you can make time for two appointments, if you know you're in your local CVS or Walgreens or Walmart all the time, and you're sure that you can make more than one appointment, then I think that's okay too. But I think this is one of those things where it probably doesn't make sense to overthink it. How can you get those vaccines in advance of the fall winter season, particularly if you're in one of those higher risk groups like the elderly, like immunocompromised people, like pregnant women and uh, kids under the age of five, people who have underlying chronic medical conditions. Those people, you know, you really need to be just focused on what vaccines am I eligible for and how soon can I get them? I'm trying to think of what success might look like and what a bad outcome might look like. Let's start with a bad outcome. A bad outcome would be something in which misinformation, disinformation begins to warp or distort the way the public thinks about all of these vaccines. Would that be part of it? Another might be continued confusion, lack of access. If you're telling people that to get an RSV after they've consulted a doctor, a lot of Americans don't have easy access to doctors. Right. And I think, you know, with the RSV vaccine, you don't have to see a doctor to get an RSV vaccine. There are very rare but severe side effects in people who've gotten RSV vaccine with the flu vaccine. So if you have concerns about that, that would be the kind of situation in which you might want to talk to your doctor so they can counsel you on the risks and benefits and help you decide if the RSV vaccine is right for you. But again, you do not have to talk to a doctor to get an RSV vaccine. And in fact, I had my mom just schedule for her RSV vaccine at her local pharmacy just this week. But you're right in asking what this will mean for other people who don't have easy access to a doctor, including a daughter who's a doctor. So, you know, if you're 60 or over, 
If you have chronic lung or heart disease, or if you're immunocompromised, you are at higher risk for hospitalization and death from RSV. And that's why it's recommended that you get an RSV vaccination. Celine, the question I have is, you know, we don't yet have a clear idea of the expected pattern of outbreaks for this fall, you know, exactly when each virus is likely to happen and occur. Why is that? Well, with uh, COVID during the pandemic, between masking and social distancing, we really upset those seasonal patterns, and it's going to take some time for those to get reestablished. You know, I I think we will see RSV season start sooner, so essentially now. So it does make sense to get an RSV shot as soon as possible. It's a little bit harder to say for influenza and COVID how that's going to play out. There's an expression that I think the administration is using, flu before boo. So in other words, get your flu shot before Halloween. And again, I wouldn't try to game this out too much in your head. Do what's convenient, what will allow you to get it done. Makes a lot of sense. I think, again, people, you know, that's a cute slogan, but people are really wondering. And, you know, I remember last winter, people were thinking, okay, do I get my flu shot you know, after Halloween to make sure that the, you know, the winter months on the East Coast are really covered, what do I do? And I think, you know, the more information out there about that, the better off we'll all be. You know, some of this is going to depend on the person. So if you're somebody who is just at home and you're a lazy boy watching TV and you never really go out, and maybe when you do go to the grocery store, you wear a mask and you're going to be seeing family over the holidays, maybe you are somebody who wants to wait until two to three weeks before holiday gatherings to get all your shots. But I think in general, doing what is efficient and easy is what's best. Celine, what would success look like come, let's say, the end of the year and the early part of next year? What would success look like? where the administration could claim that they were able to get where they need to be in terms of population? I'm very focused on outcomes. So how many people actually end up in the hospital? How many people end up dying? And so the percentage of people who get vaccinated is a factor, but are you getting those vaccines to the people who are highest risk as opposed to say the worried? Well, you really want to make sure the people who are highest risk are vaccinated because that's really what's going to prevent those preventable hospitalizations and deaths. So I am hopeful that the administration will really put resources into messaging targeted at the elderly and other high-risk groups and making vaccines available where they are. You know, I heard, this is to quote a colleague of mine, if you build it, they will come, doesn't really work. People have places they got to be. So you need to bring your vaccines to where they got to be. And that that includes care facilities, retirement communities, critical care facilities. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, that was one thing in the first year of vaccinations for COVID, we did really well was getting people vaccinated in nursing homes and other long-term care facilities. Unfortunately, funding for that level of effort is no longer there. And this is really being managed at a more local facility level. But that's precisely the kind of thing that would make the biggest difference here. Celine, in our polarized environment, that's again, we're talking about misinformation, disinformation everywhere, coming from abroad, coming from here at home. How much of a political test is this for the Biden administration? Yeah, I think this is really tough. In KFF polling, we've seen that the number one predictor of not being vaccinated or being skeptical about vaccination 
is political partisanship. I was recently speaking with some pediatricians who told me that for the first time, they have parents who come into the office saying, oh, no, we don't vaccinate. We're Republicans. Whereas in the past, you know, you have parents who were skeptical, who were hesitant, but they didn't frame it in those terms. They were concerned about safety or maybe spacing vaccinations. So it's really, I think what we've seen evolve over the pandemic is concerning because people are now viewing this as a identity issue, not just a health and safety question. What you're suggesting is that the private sector needs to be cooperating and leaning forward. And state and local authorities need to be embracing this and actively weighing in. The federal government is taking responsibility up to a point, but this is not, this is a big difference. This is the post-COVID moment where the finances, the effort level are different. Do you agree? And should we be thinking more about what governors and mayors and community leaders are thinking and doing? I think that's right, Steve. I think hyper-local, you know, the federal government still has a role to play in terms of providing resources to local actors, players to be doing this kind of outreach. But it really needs to be people at the local level who understand their communities, who are trusted by their communities, and also the business sector. There's something called the Edelman Trust Barometer, which looks at what sectors of society are most trusted and according to that data, the corporate sector, businesses in America are among the most trusted. And so if you have business leaders in a community saying, look, this is good for our community, this is good for our local economy to keep people at work, not sick, not having to stay home because their child is sick, to keep people on the job, I think that kind of message will resonate coming from business leaders. Is there any evidence yet of trying to activate a coalition across the country that would be hyper-local of this kind? Well, there's the COVID Community Corps that was organized by Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. To what degree they're going to be active this respiratory virus season remains to be seen. I've seen some patchwork kinds of efforts along the lines that I described, but nothing really comprehensive and nationwide, at least not yet. We haven't, I don't think, emphasized how much we're blessed by having, finally having RSV uh, vaccines. You know, there was a breakthrough scientifically back in 2013 in the development, and then things were moving along quite well, and then it got put on the back shelf in 2019-20 with COVID. But now we're back in a position where we have two GSK and Pfizer both producing quality product. We have an infant formula likely. We now have pregnant vaccine coming forward. This is a big leap, I think. And I'm not sure that uh, many Americans fully appreciate what that means, particularly for infants and the elderly. Yeah, I mean, this is a really big deal. I remember being oh, an intern or resident years ago now. I won't say how many, but thinking, you know, here I have a patient who's in the hospital with COPD or emphysema. And they're in the hospital because they had a flare triggered by RSV. Wouldn't it be great if we had a vaccine for RSV, just like we had for influenza already at that time? I think, you know, the unnecessary hospitalizations, whether that's among the elderly or among infants, that can be really scary for parents to have to go through that. And there's really no reason for them to have to suffer through that now that we have these protective options. Celine, thank you so much for taking time today to make sense of this, which is a complicated and difficult issue to understand. 
I'm leaving on a more optimistic note than when I entered the conversation. I was in reading over the accounts thinking this is just going to be very difficult to bring across. But you've made the case that, in fact, common sense can prevail. I hope so. I hope so. Thanks for having me, Steve. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit csis.org.